You'll notice that I have brought my fine, expensive, cheap, disposable camera for which I'm taking pictures because when I'm away, the agreement is the session will let me go away to speak, but I have to bring back pictures of where I've been. That's to prove to them that I haven't been goofing off. So <clears throat> what I want to do is uh, if I can get all of our OPC ministers. No, not right now. Oh, I'll oh, get you a little bit later. Well, I thought you wanted you know, a picture of you with the whole group. Oh, no, they don't want me in the picture. They don't want you in the picture. I'm taking the picture. That's well, right. you could have just gone to Clancy's. I don't want to break the know? lens. Yeah. Anyway, I would like a picture of all the OPC ministers at the end of this. Okay, so Raleigh, I'll put you on one end and Alan on the other, and you can hold the rest of the guys in the middle, okay? <laughs> okay. All right. Incidentally, <laughs> I'll put Alan on the right and I'll put you on the left, Raleigh. <laughs> okay, who is Tabitha Verdick? Is there a Tabitha Verdick? Are you Tabitha Verdick? Tabitha, you did a very bad thing today. You know what you did? Don't you love being embarrassed in front of 150? You did something that is utterly unconscionable in the OPC, Tabitha. You left your catechism at the back unused, unoccupied. So I have your catechism, and I'll be glad to give it back to you. Poor Tabitha. I have, the kids are going to be glad to see me go and get down the mountain. And All right, now, incidentally, how many of you, how many of you won in something or something this afternoon? How many of you children? I'll take this thing out. How many of you won? Any of you children in the games that you win? How many were winners this afternoon? Wow, lots of winners. I won't ask how many were on the other side. How many of you took naps this afternoon? <laughs> Great, okay. Super. Okay, um, we're on page 13 in the uh, notes for tonight. Um, let's pray. That will give you children a few seconds because I'm going to give you a quiz. Now let me say, I want to get the names again of you two. For some reason, I've got... Now give me the name again. The young lady. Carrie? How do you spell that? K-E-R-R-I-E? Ay, ay, ay. There's more versions of the name Carrie. I was telling somebody who've got three Carries in the church in Franklin Square. I'll spell their name differently. Of course, when you've got a name like Shisko, who's to complain, right? And then, and then your name, young man, again? What? Scott. Okay. All right. So I might ask you some questions, okay? But... All right. Let's pray first, okay? Father, thank you for the time that we can enjoy here. And we do thank you for the beauty of the weather we know that at all times, in all places, the heavens declare your glory and the firmament shows your handiwork, but sometimes to our eyes, the heavens seem to declare it in a more beautiful way and the firmament tends to show it in a more beautiful way, and that we see up here, and we ascribe to you all glory for that. But Lord, we know that the beauty of the trees and the glory of the sky and the sun are not sufficient to save us or even tell us how to walk as saved people. Your word does that. And so we're thankful that tonight we can learn from the Word written and the Word made flesh how we might live and please you. Now cause us to gird up the loins of our minds. For those who didn't get naps today, they may be tired in particular. And we ask that you will let them be awake and alert as we learn this evening about the enemies that we are to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for the children. Because I know the adults don't know the answer, so the children, you can help the adults. Okay? All right. First of all, what does the word enmity mean? Yes. It means warfare. Excellent. Very, very good. There was a boy named Ben. I did actually ask a few of the children. 
Some of them are going to have coronaries when the speaker asks them. But Ben, a little boy named Ben. Where's Ben? Who's the Ben that got the right answer in the line tonight? Where's that Ben? <laughs> well, I got pretty proud after he got the right answer, right? <laughs> okay, enmity means enemy. Um, now, here's a harder one. though. What does seed mean? When the, when the Bible says between your seed and her seed, it might take a little older child to explain that. That's a harder one. What does that mean? Yes, dear, what? Children, excellent, between your, your seed and her seed. Um, give me some examples of the uh, struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman is ultimately who? Jesus Christ. Ah, the young man at the front answered it. Very good, excellent. And, uh, okay, give me and the, seed of the ser- and the seed of the serpent. What's the seed of the serpent? Followers of what? The followers of the devil, okay? Give me some examples, some of the children. Give me, give me, can you give me an example of the struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? You were going to say Noah condemning his generation. Isn't that what you, I, I could tell? What's, you weren't going to say that. Well, if you got it, you would have gotten it right. Okay? What's that? Cain and Abel. Excellent. Very good. What's another one? What's another example of the struggle between the devil, the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman? Yes. What's that? I, I didn't hear it. Noah, excellent, condemned his generation. Okay, what else? What about Israel? Israel and what nation? Egypt. I'll give you a great one tonight from Daniel and the nation of what? Babylon represents the world. Good. How do the children do, adults? What do we grade them tonight? Someone give an A. There's a school teacher. Good. Give them an A+. plus. Wow, that's one of the children that said that. Very good. You grade yourself very easily. All right? What's the lesson that we learned from last night? We don't live in a what? What kind of economy do we not live in? A we don't live in a playground. Very good. We don't live in a peacetime economy. Okay, a war, warfare mentality. And young people and adults, listen. When you go down the mountain here on Friday, I expect that you're all going to leave here realizing that you are soldiers. Okay, that will be the greatest encouragement to me is that you come away from this conference knowing that you leave as soldiers. Okay, now. We dealt last night with the fight, part one, and hopefully you're convinced that there is a fight. But, now you should have page 13 in your outline. Tonight you're going to have to fill in the blanks when we come to it, okay? But, you know you're in the fight, but that's not enough. Number one, you must know who your enemies are. Okay, so fill in the blank, page 13. Number one, you must know who your enemies are. And number two, you must know how to fight them. Okay, so that's filling it in. You must know who your enemies are, and you must know how to fight them. Now, don't worry about how to fight them. That will come tomorrow night. But tonight, who your enemies are. Now, let me tell you how important this is. Any men here fought in the Vietnam War? No men that fought? Steve, give me a lesson from the Vietnam War about the importance of knowing your enemies. Was it difficult to know your enemies in that war? Okay. Okay. All right, but wasn't it true that the North Vietnamese were the enemy, South Vietnamese were our allies, but when you looked at them, apart from the gun, any difference? No, no difference at all. And it was also true during the war that the enemies from North Vietnam could be those that you were with thinking they were your friends and they could kill you in an instant. Right? Steve, did you hear of anything like that? 
Absolutely, because you didn't know who your enemies were. Now, same thing can happen in the spiritual realm, and that's why tonight we're going to deal with the theme of knowing your enemies. Now, I'm going to read Scripture in a minute. But first of all, and for you children, this is the question that I'll ask you when I see some of you. And I did. I've got to let my yes be yes. As I was telling somebody in the line tonight, if I tell you I'm going to ask you questions, I mean it. Even you, young man, what's your name? That's the question I'm asking you. What's his name? Adam. Oh, that's a good name. Very good. That's a wonderful name. And uh, But Adam, you're a little bit young, but I, at least I got your name in there. I remember that. Okay, but the um, for the children, this is the question that I'll ask you over the next 24 hours when I see you. Okay? What are the three enemies that are our biggest enemies that we face? Now, my children picked me up on this when I did this before, and they're right. So I'm going to... They said, but Daddy, you told us before that sin is our greatest enemy in there, right? But let's say under sin and how sin works, what are our three biggest enemies? Anybody, any of you children know what they are right now? Yes, dear. What? Carrie. Okay, the devil is one. Do you know the other two? You don't. Okay, by tonight, you will, though. Anybody else know the other two? Yes. Hmm. You know, really, ultimately, the ungodly people are not our enemies. We need to see to make them friends of Christ. But one of our enemies will work in ungodly people. In fact, all three will. But what are the other two enemies? The devil, the... Yes, dear, what? The... Huh? No, I didn't hear what you said. God gave me big ears, but they don't hear as well as they used to. What? The, the serpents. Okay, the devils. Um, let's listen, and then you'll get the answer. Okay, first is the world. The first enemy is the world. First John 2, verses 15 through 17. And I really toyed with whether to deal with that tonight. I almost wish that I could have, but I only have limited time to do it. But the world, First John 2 and verses 15 through 17. John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, listen, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lusts of it. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, just real quickly about the world. The world, folks, is not things. It is a dangerous heresy to say that things are the world. Some people, the world is alcohol, or the world is tobacco, or the world is television, or the world is Internet, or the world is the United Nations. That's not what the world is. The world is a mindset that works through anything and everything to oppose Christ and His kingdom. That's what the world is. It's a mindset that works through anything and everything to oppose Christ and His kingdom. Remember the old... H.G. Wells radio program. Some of you may remember it. it was in 1938, The War of the Worlds, based on Jules Verne's novel. Well, that's what we're dealing with, The War of the Worlds. Let me give you, for the children, a little illustration of what the world is, okay? I don't have a glove, but I want you to imagine I'm going to put a glove on my hand. This is what the world is, okay? Watch my hand. Notice the left hand. I'll use my right hand in a moment. But I can't use my right hand because the mic's got it. Okay, this, the world is like this. Imagine... The world is a mindset. It's a power, okay? Like the power in my hand. And it will oppose, however it can do it, all of the things of Jesus and His kingdom. That's the world. So imagine my putting a glove on my hand. You've got to imagine. Imagine putting a glove on my hand and on my thumb is music. 
and on my index finger is the computer world. On my middle finger is television, all right? On uh, this finger over here is education. And then on my little finger is um, entertainment. Uh, pick anything you want, okay? So I've got a glove on my hand, and in each of those five fingers of the glove are these things. Now, there's nothing wrong in entertainment, nothing wrong in movies, nothing wrong in television, nothing wrong in music, okay? But, but the world will fill that glove, and it will use that glove in order to oppose Christ and his kingdom. You know what a hand can do? A hand can get you by the neck, and it can choke you and kill you. Okay, so the world will do that. Now, imagine my right hand. Okay, another powerful thing. Is your hand powerful, Adam? I bet you can pick up something with your hand, right? Sure. Okay, my right hand. Okay, another powerful thing. But this is a good thing. This is the power of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. And he has all power in heaven and on earth. He's even more powerful than the left hand. Not sliding you left-handed people, but he is at the right hand of the Father. And now, we take all of this glove again. Here is music and television, entertainment, recreation, computer, whatever you want. Okay? These are things on the glove. And the power of the Lord Jesus can use all of those things for the glory of his name. And the goal of the Lord's soldiers is to be in this hand using all of these things for the glory of Jesus. All right? But the world is a mindset that opposes, that works through anything and everything to oppose Christ and his kingdom. Now, that's our first enemy. What's the first enemy? Children, the what? The the world. Okay, second is the flesh. That's what we're dealing with in the morning messages. Galatians 5.17 The flesh lusts against the spirit. Spirit against the flesh. Okay, And if your children want to learn about that, I'm going to let your parents deal with it because they're listening in the morning and I'll let them cover that with you. But the world, our first enemy. What's our second enemy? The what? The flesh. Very good. You got that one? You have a question about it, right? No, you're going to say the flesh though, right? No, you weren't. You're going to give the third enemy, which is what? The do you know the third enemy? You sure you do. The devil. The devil is the third enemy, okay? The devil is the third enemy that we face. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and verse 9, the text for tonight. 1 Peter 5 and verses 8 and 9 for tonight. Likewise, I'm sorry, verse 8, be sober. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober. That means have two feet on the ground. Be vigilant. That means always be on the lookout, on the watch, because your adversary, very interesting word, we'll come back to it later, your adversary, the devil, the word is diabolos, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour to swallow up. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Your three biggest enemies the world the flesh and the devil. My children, that's the question I'm going to ask you when I see some of you over the next 24 hours. Tonight, 
We're only going to focus on one. And sometimes it's hard to actually distinguish between the three. But tonight, we're going to focus on one of them, and that is the devil. Now, again, you're on page 13. Let's look first at his constant and regular activity. His constant and regular activity. Verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. He walks about as your adversary. Now, I must confess to you, and this is quite a confession in the OPC, I have somewhat enjoyed reading a couple of Frank Peretti's novels. I'm embarrassed even to say that I've enjoyed reading a couple of Frank Peretti's novels. He has a great editor. He's a good writer of fantasy. The devils like the tumbling Walensky's jumping around doing their gymnastics in heaven while they wreak havoc in the earth. And somewhere along the line, God gets into the picture and ultimately ekes out a victory. The view of Frank Peretti. Please, do not get your view of the devil from Frank Peretti. Satan is not all-powerful, but he is powerful. What the Scriptures do teach is that he is one who is constantly hostile toward you. Now, that's what the Scriptures teach. He's not all-powerful. Only God is. Remember Job chapter 1. Job must come before the Lord and get permission or rather the devil must come before the Lord to get permission to go after Job. Now that teaches, whatever else it teaches, it teaches that the devil is not all-powerful. Okay, But he is one who is constantly hostile toward you. How does he do that? Well, the Scriptures speak in interesting language. The Scriptures speak of thrones and dominions and principalities and powers which are generally understood to be powers that the devil uses to do his work. See, when you think of the devil, folks, please do not think of one creature who's everywhere in the world. Only God is omnipresent. When you think of an administration, we speak of the administration of President Clinton. You say, President Clinton has done so-and-so, or his administration has done so-and-so. There are thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of representatives of that administration carrying out its will. And so it is with the devil. Hence, there are thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I've got to tell you, uh, you older OPCers will really appreciate this story. You younger ones won't get it, but it's cute. Um, how many of you know who Harry Emerson Fosdick was? Raleigh, you know Harry Emerson Fosdick is? Good guy or bad guy? Yeah, he was a bad guy. Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a sermon, I think it was 1926 or something, on shall the fundamentalist win. And he was an, he was an outstanding preacher. Well, he preached was wrong, but he was a great, great preacher. Oh, he was a great communicator. And very, I mean, you talk about defective, deceptive and devilish. I mean, he was just, well, Harry Emerson Fosdick used to have a radio program on WOR. And I'm not old enough to remember it, but I read this. And uh, he would actually go to the radio station and do this thing live and then go to the Riverside Church and preach. And so one morning, there was a young announcer, and then everything was done live. That's when radio was great. They couldn't edit out all the, the flubs in it. And so Harry, Harry Emerson Fosdick was introduced by this young man who said, and now... It is our privilege to have the minister of the Riverside Church, Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick, who is truly a prince of the power of the air. 
<laughs> See? The fundamentalists do win over him at that point. At any rate, let's, <laughs> let's get back to the, the, uh, uh, this constant and regular activity. If you think I'm like this Tuesday night, wait till Thursday night. We'll get through one point with all of this. Okay, the devil is one who is constantly hostile toward you. Notice in your outline again, number one, he is active in every place. Okay, he's not all-powerful in every place. He's not present in every place, but he is or can be active in every place. The devil can be active in your quiet. He can be active in your busyness, active in your families. He is active in all nations. Again, he is the prince of the power of the air. And how does air influence you? In everything you do, everywhere you are, there's air. And he can influence you anywhere. Number two, he is active in all of your duties. Now, the devil is not to be confused with your flesh, but he'll tickle it. And he'll use it. He can be active in all of your duties. It's true of the Lord. We say, whither can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I go down into hell, you were there. But the devil and his influences in this age, where there's a battle of worlds, can influence you in the same way. He's active in all your duties. Number three, he is active in all times and seasons. There's no time that the devil is on vacation. Now, I've heard people say, take a vacation? The devil doesn't take a vacation. Well, the devil doesn't live in a weak body like mine. This one needs a vacation. So do you. So don't fall for that silly argument. The devil, though, does not take a vacation, and he and his henchmen are active in all times and seasons. Folks, you go through your lows, you're in your valleys in life, and the devil will dog your tracks. Notice he's like a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. Go through your times of highs, your mountaintop experiences, and let pride begin to enter in and the devil's right there. Okay? In the highs in your life, in your times of fatigue, in your times of sickness. I'm not sure Luther was far from wrong when he was closed up in Wartburg Castle and he was so vexed with assaults inside of him that he threw an inkwell at the devil. Well, the devil's not going to be hurt by inkwells. But I'm not sure Luther was far wrong in understanding that in times of fatigue and sickness and discouragement, the devil can work. The devil is active and can or can be active in every providence. Consider my servant Job. You can't lay a hand on him, but otherwise go to it. And in all of those difficulties, the devil was involved. And later with Job himself. Saul's impatience in which a dark spirit came upon King Saul, a devilish activity. Peter's boldness and Peter's fears had the involvement of the devil in them. And what does Paul say of the thorn in his flesh? Now, I don't know if Paul was struggling with poor vision, as some say, or a particular temptation of the flesh. I don't know, but this is what he says. He says, that thorn in the flesh is a messenger of what? It is a messenger of Satan that is sent to me to buffet my body. So the devil can be active in every presence. And number five, the devil can be active in people. I did not say that the devil can possess Christians because the devil cannot possess a Christian. Oppress and afflict, yes. The devil can possess non-Christians on mission fields. That's been seen. Now I'm speaking about the devil being active in people. My proof, 
Peter says, Lord, let it be far from you that you go to the cross. And Jesus says, get you behind me. What? Satan. Okay, so the devil can work in people. That's not possessing them, but using them. How does he work? What are its titles? He is a tempter. He is an accuser. He is a deceiver. He is a destroyer. Now, do you believe those terms? If you do, you'll realize he's one of our three biggest enemies. And friends, particularly the children, but adults too, don't joke about the devil. In fact, you don't joke about any holy things. That's a violation of the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Bible jokes, okay? That kind of thing. And be very careful with that because you'll treat lightly holy things, but don't you ever take jokes. Treat, take jokes about the devil. Can you imagine? It's a Friday night. You've got your children out playing in your beautiful yard in Southern California, and there's an announcement on the radio and the television. There has been a cage that has opened up at the local zoo, and there are ten wild lions that are roaming around in these neighborhoods. They are hungry, they are dangerous, they've had blood, and they will kill. And moms, by the time that announcement's done, you have zipped out the door and you're screaming to your children, Get in the house now! What does the text say? The text says the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is his constant and regular activity. But now, notice that it says he is a like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let's consider some of his roarings, if you will, tonight. That's point B, his roarings. Now, there's other methods that the devil will use other than roaring. In Psalm 91, uh, the devil is likened to a fowler. Now, the children and maybe adults wonder what a fowler is. Anyone know what a fowler is? What's a fowler? Yes, sir, what's a fowler? Yeah, it's a man that catches birds. And, and usually, how do you catch a bird? What's that? They trap them, right? They use some kind of a trap for them to deceive them. I mean, you, know, I mean, you don't go out and say, come on, bird, come in the cage. You've got to trap the bird, right? Okay, so the snare of the fowler is something that will trap you. The devil is likened to a fowler in Psalm 91. He's called an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. An angel means he's a messenger of light. You know, does it surprise you that you've got, particularly in California, almost as many varieties of religion as you've got people? And all of them profess to be enlightenment. Well, the devil works. See, that's part, that's one of the fingers, that's the thumb of the glove in which he works. The thumb of religion in which he says, ah, enlightenment. I remember when I was younger, there was Guru Maharesh Yogi. And he taught that some kind of a serum came out of your body that would help give you light. What a weird... Well, anyway, that's the idea. The angel of light. Or he's a deceiver and he's a liar. Okay? But how does he roar? The devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let me give you three ways in which he will roar. Verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In the context here, persecutions are one of the ways the devil will roar. 
persecutions, the raging of the nations as an instrument of the devil. The raging of the nations as an instrument of the devil. I cannot help but think of what is happening in South Sudan with the raging of North Sudan against the Lord's people there. The raging of the evil one. And Satan is behind that. My proof? Revelation chapter 12. Look with me at Revelation 12. Verses 13 to 17. Now without getting into all of the intricacies of how you understand this text, it certainly does speak of the birth of Christ and the church persecuted spread into the world. But Revelation 12 and verse 13. Now when the dragon, that is the devil, who had been cast down, saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, probably speaking of persecution of Israel, persecution of the early church, however you want to understand that, persecution of the Lord's people. Why? It's the persecution of the seed of the woman. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. That's a magnificent text because the devil thinks he's got the woman in the earth but the Lord is sovereign over the earth and the earth helps the woman. The serpent spews water out of his mouth to flood the woman and destroy her, but the earth over which Jesus rules opens its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Now we're going to come back to that, but let me just tell you what that says. The devil is really enraged with Christ. He is enraged that those elements thwart him. But it's not the woman who controls the elements, it's Jesus. But he is enraged with the one who's benefited from it. He is enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's the story of the whole period until Christ returns. He will rage against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Parents, God tells you you have a responsibility to discipline your children and that includes when they're disobedient spanking them. The rod and reproof give wisdom. And if your area is like New York, you have a neighborhood watcher who has been trained to watch for child abuse. And I'm not going to be surprised if there is even some mom in this room who gets taken before a local authority and is at least subtly accused of child maliciousness, child abuse, because you spank. When all you're wanting to do is obey what Jesus says. And don't you be surprised. Because you obey what the Lord Jesus says and there will be opposition from the evil one. And don't you count it odd when you take a job and you're told, and it's not a work of necessity or mercy, that you've got to work on the Lord's day. And you'll get opposition if you don't. Don't count that odd. Because the devil rages against those who keep the commandments of the Lord Jesus. 
Don't count that strange. That's what we ought to expect. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. So in persecutions, the devil will work. And God's people can expect a whole lot more of it in our country in the years ahead. Number two, his roarings are by strong temptations. My proof, Jesus is in the wilderness. And after 40 days, he is tempted of the devil. You know, at the end of a 40-day period of a fast, and you really can fast for 40 days. In a fast period, there is a period in which for a few days it's rather difficult. For about another week or so, it's rather easy. And then it gets kind of difficult for a while. But apparently for those who fasted for long periods, for about two to three weeks, you feel great. You don't even feel like you don't even want to eat. But there's a point at which your body craves food like you could never imagine. And that's at the 40-day period. It's at the point of Jesus' greatest weakness that, Jesus, that the devil comes to him and says, See those stones over there? You see stones in the Middle East, and boy, they look like great old pieces of bread. A little steam coming up from them if they got some water on them, and man, you think you could eat them? He says, Change those stones into bread. That's the devil that tempts the Lord Jesus. Strong temptations are the way of the devil. Powerful attacks of sexual lust or temptations to become addicted to some life-controlling element. Temptations toward unbelief. When the Puritans studied the work of the devil, this was always number one in his list. Temptations to blasphemy and unbelief were the work of the devil. Why? Because how does the devil tempt? Has God really said? And then you say, has God really said? And that's unbelief. We'll deal with how you deal with that temptation a little bit later. But temptation to blasphemy. Temptation to atheism. You ever struggle with that? Sometimes I do. And the study, I'm there. And out of the clear blue... I say to myself, you know, what if this really isn't true? I think, wait, what am I crazy? I've been through this before. What is this? The prince of the power of the air, at that point, brings a low pressure system of atheism into your area. Incidentally, you know what you do when the devil says, as God said? Very simple. You know your Bible, and you say, God said this. When it's written in the Word of God, and by the best studies of what that text says, you know that's what it says. That's your answer. Has God said, yeah, God said this. That's the answer that you give. Strong temptations that the devil gives, particularly under the language, has God said, or strong temptations because the devil is an accuser of the brethren. An accuser of the brethren. Any who have struggled with severe depression know exactly what this is. Psalm 77, in my own heart, has God forgotten to be gracious? Have His mercies clean, gone forever? My soul refuses to be comforted. And when a blood-washed, Christ-righteousness-clothed child of God going through depression says, my sin is so great. I've done so much in the past. I don't believe that God could be merciful to me. All of my sins come before me as if I committed them five minutes ago. That's the devil at work accusing the brethren. Your simple answer on that 
is God is greater than your heart. Though my heart condemns me, God in His grace and His mercy, taking my sins as far as the east is from the west, is greater than my heart. And so He's an accuser of the brethren. That's why, my friends, only the Gospel is the way that you can fight against the wiles of the evil one. So, strong temptations. And then number three, his roarings. The devil's roarings will come through the noise of our culture. Now, this is probably kind of close to what the world is, but as I said, sometimes it's hard to distinguish them. But the devil will work through the roarings, or the rather the busyness and the character of our own culture. I received this some time back. Maybe some of you did. But this epitomizes what I'm saying. It's entitled, Are You Busy? Satan called a worldwide... Now, this isn't true for you. to Don't go back and say, Oh, Pastor Cisco said the devil had a worldwide convention. No, 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 no. This is a, this is a little... It's a make a point. Okay, It's a story to make a point. Satan called a worldwide convention. In his opening address to his evil angels, he said... We can't keep the Christians from going to church, although it does seem to me he's doing a good job, but this is what it says here. We can't keep the Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate, abiding relationship experience in Christ. If they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So, let them go to their churches, let them have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time so they can't gain that relationship with Christ. Now, this is what I want you to do. Angels, distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout the day. Well, how do we do that? Shouted the angels. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six to seven days each week, ten to twelve hours a day so they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their family fragments soon, their home will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still, small voice. Entice them to play the radio or cassette player whenever they drive to keep the TV, VCR, CDs, and their PCs going constantly in their home and see to it that every store and restaurant plays non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their minds and break their union with Christ. Fill the coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with the news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail, mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and promotional offering, free products, services, and false hopes. Now, they may not do that in California, but I know they do it in New York. Keep skinny, beautiful models on the magazine so the husbands will believe that external beauty is what's important and they'll become dissatisfied with their wives. And incidentally, so girls will do it as well and become bulimic and anorexic. Ha! That will fragment their families quickly. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted, disquieted, and unprepared for the coming week. Don't let them go out in nature to reflect on God's wonders. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, concerts, and movies instead. Keep them busy, 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 busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotions. Go ahead. 
Let them be involved in soul winning, but crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Christ. Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause. And it will work. It will work. And it was quite a convention. The evil angels went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get more busy and more rushed, going here and there. And I guess the question is, has the devil been successful at his scheme with you? You be the judge. Does busy mean be? Being you under S. Satan's Y. Yoke? Then it says, please pass this on. Or are you too busy? You say, where do you get all that out of the Bible? It was utterly unlike anything that made sense to the world, let alone to Jews, that Messiah would go to a cross. Utterly unlike human wisdom. And so Peter is upset to the hilt. Far be it from you. And Jesus says, Peter, not only get you behind me, Satan, but he says, your mind and heart are not bent on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's exactly what the devil will do. He'll get you bent on the things of man through the noise of your culture rather than on God. And my friends, you must not function as practical deniers of the evil one however you want to understand the intricacies of his work, whether there's particular territorial influences and all that stuff, that can be discussed at another time. What the Bible says clearly is he is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Your third enemy. Children, what again? The first enemy, the what? World. Second is the flesh. And the third is the what? The devil. All righty. Now let's look at his goal in verse 8. I notice I've lost some of them already. Mark, you did a great job exhausting them today with the games. But they're getting a well-deserved sleep. They'll learn well tomorrow. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 again. What is his goal? Your devil, the devil walks about like a roaring lion. He's your adversary. He seeks whom he may devour. He is your adversary. The word means a legal adversary, an enemy in a lawsuit. He is the devil, which means he is a slanderer. He is a lion. He seeks to devour. That is his goal. He seeks to devour or swallow whole and chew up whom? You. He says to the believers, you resist him. You be steadfast in the faith. That is his goal. He's Satan. I'm not saying Satan is the Antichrist, but Satan is anti-Christ. His goal for you is exactly the opposite of Christ at every single point. The devil's a murderer. Jesus is the one who brings life. The devil is a slanderer. Jesus is the one who forgives. The devil will bring about misery. Jesus brings about mercy and satisfaction. The devil is, the language is adikos. He is against the righteous stand. Jesus is himself righteous and gives you righteousness. The devil will make you his slave. Jesus will make you a son and an heir. The devil will bring you into bondage. And Jesus frees you. Satan is anti-Christ. And that is why the devil is no joke. But I want you to consider this again. His goal is to oppose and to destroy and to devour. 
But, and you've got to link together what I said last night to grasp this. You saw it in the text in Revelation. The devil spews out water in order to flood the Lord's people. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's what a text says. The earth opens up, swallows up that water, and protects the woman and her children. And the devil is angry. And he goes after the Lord's people. It was under the power of Christ that the earth swallowed the water, even as under the power of Christ the waters of the Red Sea were parted. And the devil is angry with Christ. His raging is ultimately not against you, but against Christ. Saul, Saul, instrument of the devil, why do you persecute me? The devil is really raging the Lord's people. Look at Romans 8 and verse 38. And this is where we must, one of the many places, we must draw the line against what the Frank Peretti's of this world say about the devil. I have a virtually pagan view of an equal power of evil and good in which the outcome is uncertain. Not so. Romans 8 and verse 38 says this. Paul writes, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if it's good angels and their principalities and powers, obviously this text doesn't make any sense. Their work is to keep you in the love of Christ. These angels and principalities and powers are the evil angels and the power of the evil one. And they will not separate you from the love of Christ. Rather, it is in the midst of all of those things that you're not just a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror through Him who loved you. See, let me use an illustration. Sheepdogs barking at sheep really seem pretty vicious. If you've ever seen well-trained sheepdogs, I want to tell you, if you don't know what you're looking at, you just get in on that. You think these are wild animals ready to go after these sheep and kill them. They, they, are pretty, they seem pretty vicious. They're barking and they're sniping and they're nipping at the sheep. Of course, sheep are pretty stupid anyway and they need that kind of work in them to get them going in the right way. But they seem pretty vicious. You know what the devil is? The devil is Christ's sheepdog. And the devil will use the barkings and the roarings, or the Lord will use the barkings and the roarings of the devil to nip at your heels so you'll go to the sheepfold and continue to follow the shepherd. That's why the Lord Jesus will continue to use the devil. Because when you go to the sheepfold and you follow the shepherd... You come to the one who is able to save you to the uttermost. He's the only one who can enable you to resist the power of the devil. And the Lord uses the devil in order to turn you constantly to Christ. 
The devil is battling Jesus. Jesus is working through the devil to get the victory and to turn you to himself. The battle is not really yours. It's Christ's. And he will crush the serpent as well as its seed. There's that interesting text in Romans. You will soon crush Satan under your feet. I don't know exactly what that means, but at least it's saying the church will be victorious over Christ. Okay, so his goal is as an adversary, a lion, but remember, he's not really fighting you. He's fighting Christ. What about his defeat? Look at Colossians 1 and verse 14. Colossians 1 and verse 14. I love this text. Those of you who were in Westminster Church Sunday morning, I hope you don't mind me once again referring to my favorite text about the Gospel. Along with, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the one I go to for my great comfort. Having said Colossians 2 and verse 13, He has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In principle, the devil is defeated at the cross. The handwriting of ordinances written against you, all of your sin that is written up on a board, one sin of thought and word and deed, everything from the point of conception, and the devil's an accuser of the brethren. He'll say to you, see all those sins you committed? All those things you did from your youth, they damn you, every single one. The devil's great at reminding you that hell is open to you because of all of your sin. But now Jesus at the cross, by his own blood, brings a great eraser. He washes all of that away. And you can say, oh, devil, you tempt me with that sin. The marks are erased by the blood of Christ. In principle, he is defeated as the accuser of the brethren at the cross. And he has no power to destroy the elect of God. My friend, I want to ask you, are you in Christ? Can you say, oh, the Lord Jesus is my hope for now and eternity. His righteousness clothes me. His blood covers me. Then when the devil tempts you and slanders you, you go through that low point in your life and all of the sins in the past are as if you committed them five minutes ago. You go back to the cross of Christ and you say the blood of the Lord Jesus is sufficient to keep on cleansing me from all of my sins. You get you behind me, devil. In principle, he is defeated at the cross. And you may be in Doubting Castle, imprisoned by giant despair. And some of you know exactly what that is. In a castle in which the Bible is clouded over with as far as you see it, doubts. How can these promises be true? And even if they are true, how can they be true for me? And if they're not true for me, there's no hope for me. And if there's no hope for me, I'm only destined for hell. And hell is far worse than I can ever imagine. You're in Doubting Castle and giant despair is the enemy of the devil. Is the enemy that the devil uses. Jesus comes with a key of promise and says, My blood is more than sufficient to cleanse you. And it'll take you out of that. That's how you fight the devil, by in principle always going back to the cross. Ultimately, this will happen at the return of Christ. Revelation 20 and verse 10. Revelation 20 and verse 10. As we get this picture of the very end, the devil who deceived them, as he will do when he's unleashed for a little season at the end of time, 
The devil who deceived them, notice his work as a deceiver, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, ultimately at Christ's return. And you know, it's a glorious thing for me to think of a man, Christ Jesus, powerful, vibrant man, muscles rippling as he goes to the temple and casts the money changers out. I love that story. But it's even more glorious to think of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords at the last day when all of human history is past and there's the elect and the reprobate standing before Him and the devil and with all of His power as Almighty King He casts the devil out of this world. And He will at the last day, that climactic defeat of the evil one. But now, how does the defeat of the devil come? Going back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. Here's how it comes. 1 Peter 5 and verses 8 and 9. Peter gives the prescription for victory over the devil now. Even given the cross, given the promise of the future in the interim period. In verse 9, he says, Resist him. Stand against him. Steadfast in the faith. By your resisting him, steadfast in the faith. You stand against the power of the devil. James 4, 7. Resist. Stand against the devil and he will flee from you. Now, sometimes, particularly young people and adults, you've got to do the fleeing. Here's a devil in a skirt. And you've got to flee away, men, from the devil in the skirt. Sometimes, young ladies, the devil will be in a car. I don't mean literally. And I don't mean by way of possession, but by way of influence, using the animal on two legs. And I don't mean that as a biological statement. That would be wrong. But in terms of his character, and you've got to get out of that car. You say, stop right now. Sometimes you've got to flee the devil or in a bar or at a video game or wherever it would be. And young people, sometimes you've got to do it. When you get these chat rooms on the Internet and you've got somebody on there who says, would you like to see some nice pictures or perhaps we could meet at a park someplace? And the devil works through those things. Sometimes you've got to flee. But the text here says simply, don't give in. Resist him. You stand your ground with the Word of God as your ground. And that's what it means. Stand fast. This is what God says and I ain't moving. I don't like that bumper sticker that says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. God said it. That settles it. You better believe it. And that's what it is to stand against the power of the evil one. This is what the Word of God says, and I won't give in. Steadfast in the faith. The faith is what God has said. You are steadfast in a thus says the Lord. Joseph had been taught from his youth. You don't use your body to sin against God. So when Potiphar comes to tempt him, he says, steadfast, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And then he fled. But he stood firmly. Another example in the Scriptures. Daniel. Young people, you study the book of Daniel. Whatever else Daniel's about, 
It is about the way in which you live in Christ in a godless world. And oh, I love Daniel. There's a decree that the king signs. You don't pray to anyone other than him. What a stupid decree. You're going to die. And I love the way it says in the book of Daniel, and Daniel, knowing that the decree was signed, went up to his home and went up to his room and opened his windows toward Jerusalem. Everybody could see him down there. That was the way he'd done it. And he got down on his knees and he prayed three times a day, just as was his custom from his youth. He resisted the devil as he worked through that power steadfast in the faith. Or for you children, another one of my favorites, Shadrach, Meshach, and who's the third one? Abednego. Oh, isn't that great? Plain of Dura, here is the statue. Everybody comes out and we'll get the best jazz bands and we'll get the best rock bands and we'll get the disco bands and they'll all play together. And when they all play, then all you got to do is a very simple thing. Just bow down to the statue on the Plain of Dura. That's it. Simple thing. And then you're a good, loyal citizen. No big deal. Contextualize it. Just imagine that this is a way in which you can contextualize your faith and show before the world that you're really loyal to Jesus. You'll bow lower. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like three beautiful California mountains, stand up. And they are visible to those people who obviously didn't bow down because they were looking around and saw that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar is utterly incensed and calls these guys into the office and says, Fellas, um, <clears throat> didn't you understand? There's a burning, fiery furnace over there, and if you don't bow down to the statue, you're going to get thrown into the furnace right away, immediately. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Get your children to memorize the text. It's magnificent. They said, Yeah, I'd like to think they stood there and said, Oh, king, there's no need to... But I think they said it something like this. Oh, king, there really is no need to even answer you in this matter. And that was, in essence, saying to him, throw us in the furnace right now if you want. No need to even speak about it. Because, you see, you just said to us, no God can deliver you from the furnace if I throw you in it. But they said, you see, our God is able to deliver us from that burning, fiery furnace. And He will do it. And they really believe the promise of God. But if not, but even if He doesn't, Nebuchadnezzar... We're not going to bow down to the statue that you've made. That's what it is to be steadfast in the faith. P.S. They got tossed in the furnace. And there's another man with them, probably the Lord Jesus himself, an Old Testament appearance. And if Jesus could have spoken to Nebuchadnezzar, he would have said, Nebuchadnezzar, your battle is really against me. And you're not going to beat me. And he'll do the same thing for you. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. That's what I love about believing the Word of God. I'm a very simple person. God says it. That's right. The devil, using a glove, can say all kinds of things he wants. But when God says it, that settles it. And no matter what people may rage about, that's where I stand. That's the way you resist the devil. And he will. He will flee from you. Notice the encouragement as we wrap it up for tonight. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in all of the world. The encouragement here, my dear brothers and sisters, is you are not alone in this. You've got brotherhood around the world who are battling with the devil. And the Lord's promise is always resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that these same sufferings are experienced by others. If you could get videos 
of all the struggles of each believer with the world and the flesh and the devil. In those videos, the characters and the plots would ultimately be always the same. The very same thing you're dealing with here, your brothers and sisters are dealing with elsewhere. Costumes may be different. Names may have been changed to protect the guilty. But it's still basically the same plot. And your lessons in dealing with the lion of the devil are going to help you to prepare other troops. That's why parents... You know, there's a glorious holy realism in the Christian faith. And the Christian faith is the real world. And for you to sit down with your children and say, my children... I'm not a trained theologian. I haven't been to seminary, but I can tell you a little bit from the school of hard knocks. This is how the devil works. This is how the world works. This is how your flesh works. And let me tell you, just from my own experience, how you stand against the devil. That's a tremendous means to prepare the next generation of soldiers to resist the devil that he might flee from them. My brothers and sisters... In the book of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, there are pliables and timorouses and mistrust. And they never had to battle with Apollyon the Destroyer. But they also never made it to the Celestial City. It's far better for you to be a Christian in battle with Apollyon than that you be a timorous or a mistrust or a pliable. And if children, if you don't know what that means, then break out Pilgrim's Progress and read about it. In conclusion tonight, your enemies, what are they, children? Those of you still awake, what are they? The what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. For tonight, don't joke about the devil. You don't joke about someone who can destroy you. Okay? You resist him. You resist him steadfast in the faith out of faith in Christ you know what it is to be steadfast in the faith you say Jesus is my commander in chief he's the author and the finisher of my faith and he who has begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ through many dangers toils and snares I have already come Twas grace the grace of Christ has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home that's what it is to be a Christian I'm going to promise you you live like that and one day, you will see the well-deserved demise of the devil. What a glorious day that will be when King Jesus says, Devil, you're done. You go to your hell forever and ever. And the glory is after that, for all eternity, you will praise His conqueror, the great Lord Jesus. Oh man, that's great. How can you not get excited about the Christian faith when you know that it is Jesus who has resisted the devil and will one day make the devil flee from himself and all of his people? What a glorious gospel. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, make us bold just to stand where the Word of God stands. Lord, none of this is complex. We simply need to know what you say in the Scriptures and then not move from it. And then you promise us the devil will flee from us. We pray that we would know our enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil. And we pray that as the teachers meet with the young people tomorrow, as parents talk with their children tonight and tomorrow, 
We pray that you will enable them to flesh some of these things out and answer the questions. Thank you, Lord, that the children are so attentive after such a long day with so much teaching, and the adults too. But now, our Lord, make us to go forth with the second lesson about the fight, not only realizing there is a fight, realizing our enemies, but remembering that you have ordained that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Make us holy resistors. In Jesus' name, amen.